0: But on a more serious subject, um, we talked about Scotland. There are obviously things happening in Northern Ireland very recently as well within the DUP. I mean, in, in very general terms, what do you think the risks are of a, of a breakup in the UK over the next decade or so?
1: Well, I think any uh, politician would be crazy not to take them extremely seriously. I mean, we can all remember the scrabble of all the national party leaders at the time of the last referendum where for some days in the week beforehand it looked as though the referendum might actually go through and uh, Scotland would become independent and the 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 effects of that are are enormously serious I think they're very serious for Scotland as well as for the rest of the United Kingdom and internationally they're enormously uh, serious I very much doubt that England would keep its seat on the United Nations Security Council and being being booted off the UN Security Council might not appear very important but it would certainly lead to a massive reassessment of of British power and influence uh, which would probably be even worse and more marked than that which took place in 1956 after Suez so so it would it would there would be international effects but there would also be colossal domestic effects uh, too and the the, the danger uh, phil is not just Scotland seeding it is as I said uh, Ireland uh, changing its status and, and even Wales as well and in Northern Ireland, if you look at the recent polling, uh, you can see that for most uh, middle class people in um, uh, in in Ireland uh, in Northern Ireland, the issue of their economic prosperity is more important uh, to them than the union and uh, There's therefore a very great danger, either that Ireland, if this is mishandled, uh, could act as a catalyst for the breakup of the United Kingdom and Scotland would follow, or the other way around. So so it's undoubtedly extremely serious. Um, And uh, my view is that the way in which the debate needs to be framed is one that is fact-based and looks at what the effects of Scottish independence would actually be on Scotland. You see, the first referendum took place in a vacuum. No one knew the answer to the question of what the currency arrangements would be, what the debt arrangements would be, what proportion of the United Kingdom's debt would fall on Scotland's balance sheet. So so, uh, I hope that if there is to be another referendum and if the SNP get an overall majority, I do not think that can be avoided forever. I hope that it will be on the basis of some facts about what independence would do to the economic prosperity of Scotland and what the implications of independence would be, which were not part of the discussions at the time of the last referendum.
0: Sure. We've got a question which looks at a few more of the specifics of those arguments. I know you've talked a little bit about this, but what do you think is the political downside to the government of rejecting another indie ref? Sturgeon being perhaps a cautious leader, do you think she would go down the path that they they've gone down in Catalonia? Um, you know, if, and is is there a chance at some stage that you you see the SNP fracturing, given the establishment of the Alba Party, or do you think the Alba Party is uh, is, is 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 dead in the water?
1: Well, people have lost a lot of money betting on the demise of Alex Salmond and. Uh... Uh, the Alba Party is a very clever resurrection, both of his political career and possibly, possibly influence on on the referendum argument. And I think it's really all down to what Phil said at the start of his remarks: that that uh, if the SNP get an overall majority, which is a very steep hurdle under the under the electoral system at Holyrood, if the if 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 if, if the SNP do get an overall majority. Then it will be very hard to resist their argument that they have a democratic mandate for another referendum, and I think that that the uh, UK Parliament at Westminster can can hold that at bay for a while. There are perfectly respectable, decent arguments for doing so, but I don't think it can be, can be put off forever. And uh, as I say, if 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 that logic is accepted then we need to have a, an argument about what it would actually mean so that it's a fact-based referendum rather than, if you like, an aspirational referendum, which is what the last one was. Um, and there are dangers in that strategy, too, because if you start to negotiate what independence would actually mean, you may be, uh, far from putting a break on it, you may actually be increasing the likelihood of it happening. So so the whole arrangement is fraught with danger, but at the end of the day, people in Scotland are going to vote either for or against it on the basis of what it does to them and to their family. And I think that that's the right basis. And I think that the, there's a very, very powerful argument indeed to say that the union is well worth preserving in everyone's interest. We are more than the four parts of the union uh, together uh, than we would be, you know, separately. It's not just, we are, there's a very powerful impetus behind the union. It's good for our economics, our international uh, actions and reputation. And also, uh, it's extremely good for our politics, in my view. But but those are arguments which have got to be made and, and won. And issues like who leads it and who has the right, you know, the, the English going to tell the Scottish what's good for them is not, The best way to do it you want the Scots themselves to lead this debate on both sides so that there's an authentic Scottish voice that's heard uh, standing up for the union and making clear why in our view it's such a success.
0: Indeed so staying with with politics but shifting away from from Scotland and the union for a while um, do you you think that the Tories are potentially under threat if Labour decide another change of course and, and ditch Keir Starmer, and um, who do you think out of the, the current range of senior Labour politicians would be the most effective leader?
1: Well, they need a Blair, really, don't they? they uh, and there isn't much sign of that. And I mean, I, I do think Keir Starmer has got the most difficult job in British politics. He may have the most difficult job in the world. And I, I saw this uh, when uh, we were in opposition in 2005 under David Cameron, where, as a member of the shadow cabinet, I had a frontline line uh, uh, seat. And I, I should say, I'm publishing my uh, memoirs uh, in September this year. Uh, unlike most politicians who write memoirs to explain why they were right, uh, my memoir is designed to make you laugh, and it's called Beyond a Fringe, a reference to my I've done it. Uh, it's Beyond a Fringe uh, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey. So I will be talking about the difficulties of being, a, being a, a leader of the opposition. And Keir Starmer has the additional difficulty that he is a North London Metropolitan uh, Remainer lawyer. Uh, and when at their election my labor friends who who uh, rather cheekily asked me what i thought about the election i said they should elect lisa nandy because i thought lisa nandy had uh, you know a, a touch of the blair uh, gold dust uh, about her and you know in most cases not always but in most cases people win elections from the center and uh, labor still has work to do to get back to colonize the the center um, and uh, they're also in great trouble because, um, in, in a COVID crisis, people tend to rally to the flag, and therefore, you know, they won't get any kudos from supporting the government, but they won't get any kudos from attacking it either. And we live in very odd times. You know, the the the, the international position and the national position is that all the big problems coming down the runway, you know, uh, climate change, migration, uh, pandemics. Protectionism, terrorism—all of those require more international cooperation, and all benefit from the rules-based system. But uh, we live in an age of narrow nationalism, not international cooperation, where you have, uh, you know, the st- leadership by strong men, whether it's the president of China or uh, Donald Trump, uh, Mr. Modi. You know, there's the Putin. These are—it's it's antipathetical to international cooperation and. And uh, in Britain, too, we have a very different Tory government. It's a government that is spending uh, money. It doesn't have hand over fist. Uh, It's a a government that that, um, is is very different from Mrs. Thatcher's government, for uh, example. And that is partly because of the Covid crisis, but it's also, I think, because of the nature of Boris. You know, he is a populist character and Uh, The Conservative Party elected him because they knew he was a populist and they knew he was very effective Uh, and that's what we discovered, as I said, when I was in the West Midlands in the general election and people said they weren't voting Conservative, they were voting for Boris. So the Conservative Party ruthlessly exploits its advantages, but equally, uh, you know, when those advantages are, are less, in other words, when a leader tracks below the popularity of their own party, Tory Party has always shown itself ruthlessly in, in reinventing itself.
0: Okay, um, Andrew, I'm going to ask you one question before giving you a rest for a couple of minutes, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a couple that have come through. Um, the question is: you, you, you mentioned Andy Street in the West Midlands, um, and it's why doesn't the government uh, take the initiative and announce further devolution reform for the whole country, um, you know, including the West Midlands? Um, but other parts, um, particularly of um, England, but perhaps Wales as well.
1: Well, it might, and uh, it's under consideration. This is a government that does want to devolve power outwards from London. And, you know, I've been around so long in politics that I can remember the wheel going full circle. And uh, you, Phil, will remember that in Mrs. Thatcher's time, uh, the government got so fed up with the inadequacies of local government that it abolished the abolished the Greater London Council, and it basically was so frustrated that it 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 effectively said that Whitehall knows best and we will run the entire country from London. And then we've learnt over the years that doesn't work, and we've now reached the other extreme where people are saying the most important thing to do is to devolve power, and the metro mayors are part of that and uh, Andy Burnham, who I certainly account as a friend of mine, and Andy Street is a close friend of mine. These are two metropolitan mayors from, from different parties who are uh, without doubt uh, making sure that their form of local government reflects their views and beliefs and are making a difference. And we know that government is always best when it is as local as possible. Uh, as close to the people that it seeks to serve as it can be, so you know i 'm a fan of uh, devolution but i but i 'm also you know a cynic because I've seen this wheel go round through three hundred and sixty degrees um, and I hope that what we 're going to see is budgets devolved and real power given to metro mayors and an, and an increase in that system. Uh, so that so that so that more of the country is able to benefit from it, but it 's very important to get the benefits of that and not uh, fall to the disadvantages um, and there are disadvantages uh, as well as
0: there are on both systems thank you andrew i 'm going to take a couple of economics questions now, and one of them is to do with fiscal policy and after the the world wars, we had large deficits and we issued long term bonds to to finance them, with interest rates low, um, would the economy be better off if we stopped raising taxes and just let the economy grow? Um, yeah, it comments on that. I, I nail my colours to the mast. I, I am a fiscal hawk. I, I believe in good housekeeping. Um, that is true, and, and, and certainly you you can't run a, a an economy with a, a three hundred pound three hundred billion dollar, pound, sorry, deficit, um, without interest rates being low. If interest rates are very high, you'd have had to take um, remedial action already. But now what the government is doing is that it is raising taxes slowly. So in five years or so's time, you've still got a a pretty chunky budget deficit of of about £100 billion. Now, It's fine taking advantage of low interest rates, but I think it's very dangerous to assume that interest rates will remain low in perpetuity because unless you begin to pay down that debt, you are going to have to resurface it when it matures. And in the meantime, you're running fairly chunky deficits still, um, which have to be financed. So my own personal view is that it's fine and correct at the moment to be allowing the economy to breathe and to be reducing the deficit slowly, but running a shortfall on the scale of last year's, which was about 300 billion, as I mentioned, is a very, very dangerous thing to do indeed. And the economy should be able to grow successfully, even with a degree of fiscal tightening over the medium term. Second question is, um, when can we look beyond the post-COVID boost um, on to the UK growth numbers. Um, when we do do that, how can we tell what the ongoing economic impact is from Brexit? That's a very difficult one to assess. Um, I reckon economists will be disagreeing with that over the remainder of this year and, and onwards. I think if you if you look at the recent trade figures, I mean, this is very short term, what we had was a, as a boost to exports ahead of the, the turn of the year in case a deal wasn't done. And accordingly, what you saw was a big slump in January. Um, you saw a rebound in February to the sorts of levels you had before you got the boost in the final three months of the year. So, yeah, it's certainly the case that businesses are incurring more costs. Um, but the fact that we've got a deal means that you shouldn't see a particularly material or visible shift in economic growth this year. And it's going to be very difficult to discern what the the Brexit impact is. If you begin to see the major manufacturers saying, well, we're we're going to relocate outside the UK because it's too difficult to export into the EU, then then that's something that we all hope doesn't happen. But it will be easier in that case to say, yeah, that's the Brexit effect. But my, my guess is that you've probably got a negative effect, but it's going to be very difficult to try and quantify. A couple of questions, I think, Andrew, now, which we can both tackle. Um, I guess, sticking with the Brexit theme, very concise question here. EU, friend or foe? Well, there are friends, of course. and,
1: And it's important to recognize that Britain, in or out of the EU, is still a major European power. And we have colossal interests in common. I mean, to do with security, of course, but... But uh, other uh, interests in common, and also there 's the sort of sheer interlocked nature of our of our people, you know many people in Britain travel, live, work in Europe, and vice versa so so definitely friend there 's no question about that, but equally, they are trade and investment competitors, and we have to remember uh, that uh, seeking sole advantage in one area might act uh, very badly for us in another and there's been a lot of worry for example about the city i first worked in the city in january the first 1979 before big bang took place and, and the city completely changed and i've always believed actually that that in the end the politicians won't bugger it up and that the city is too good it's too much of a conglomeration of skills whether it's lawyers accountants investment bankers printers actuaries you know it's 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 too much of an agglomeration of skills for the politicians to make a mess of it but but that's not an infallible argument uh so so uh and clearly how britain positions the city in respect of the european union and the negotiations that have taken place and are taking place at the moment these are very very important for our economic lifeblood. So so I think we have to I mean I would never have left the European Union but not because of any great respect for the the architecture of the EU as a mini, as a junior minister in the 90s and as a more senior uh, cabinet member in in the 2010 to 12 I went to the EU and negotiated in Brussels and so on, and I found it a pretty sclerotic organisation with lots of unelected officials who gave themselves airs and graces. So, so I, it's nothing to do with that. But I just thought that the Brits would be much better off trying to take it over. Um, and also, if you think about it, British foreign policy uh, since the uh, since the period of napoleon has been about trying to stop there being a continental alliance against britain and leaving the eu is a very good way of solidifying such an alliance so so the answer to your question is definitely friend but there are lots of perilous rapids to be negotiated in pursuing that aim
0: yeah my answer would be i think much in the same vein which would be friend but rival um there are a number of rules which came through the um trade cooperation agreement, which um, industry is not happy with, including the rules of origin. I don't know how many of our clients um, listening today have have encountered those. Um, And of course, the memorandum of understanding, which supposedly has been agreed um, on the financial services front, um, is not particularly comprehensive. So um, perhaps I should say friend and serious rival in, in terms of looking for trade markets. I, I do have a, um, a question which Andrew can't answer, slightly off the wall or, or actually on the wall, which is, Andrew, what is the artwork behind you? I should add that um, Andrew is in our offices here at Investec in Gresham Street, um, um, and I, I'm afraid I don't know what the, the artwork is. OK, looking at the coronavirus, and I think we've got time for a couple more questions if, if someone wants to type in something fairly quickly. Um, Double question. I'll try and paraphrase and roll together. Um, COVID cases have reduced significantly. Um, When is it likely that the government will encourage employees to return to the office rather than saying people should work from home? And um, given the increasingly strong scientific evidence that the pandemic is under control, uh, what justification does the government have for continuing the draconian restrictions on our freedom. Would you like to have a go at those first, Andrew, before I have a word?
1: Yes, uh, thank you, Phil. I mean, the the two questions are right at the heart of the debate that's going on in Parliament. I'm a member of uh, the COVID research group, although I'm probably the most uh, uh, favourable towards the government member of that group of some 70 Conservative members of Parliament because you know, I, I lean towards the same position as Boris, which is I hate the idea of lockdowns, and I'm very worried about the civil libertarian aspects of it. And so, you know, these, these deprivations of our liberty should only be undertaken at the last possible moment. My, my, my uh, practical answer to the question is this, that we should stick to the government's roadmap, the government's roadmap, which has everything lifting in June. You know, I think that is a, that is a good... Uh, uh, yardstick to stand by, and I would not really wish to deviate from that, because I think that that gives confidence to everybody that that we are moving uh, slowly but surely towards normalisation. So I, I'm in favour of sticking uh, to that roadmap, and you know I'm worried. I'm worried to some extent. I went, I bicycled up through Hyde Park and down Oxford Street last Thursday. Uh, the first time I'd really been out, and there was no social distancing going on at all, and life looked looked pretty normal. Um, and you know, it may well be true that most of uh, my constituents uh, are now stealthily uh, resuming normal life and only paying lip service to the regulations. I don't know if that's true or not, but 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 I think the best thing is to stick to the government's roadmap. Um, and we must all keep our fingers crossed that it doesn't have to be varied, because I think if it were to be varied, as, one, as the second question implies, uh, and varied adversely in terms of normalization, I think there will be a very strong backlash, both amongst the public who by and large have have been in favour of the government's more draconian measures, actually. But it would be, a, there'd be quite a backlash, I think, particularly from my colleagues in the House of Commons.
0: Yeah, my my take would be that, sure, the, the pandemic in the UK is under control for now. Um, but as you ease the restrictions, that could change, you know, perhaps as we saw late last year, admittedly that the vaccination rates should help in, in that respect. But I think that, the justification is following the scientific advice, which seems to be, let's follow this timetable. and If things go well, then we can stick to it. And on returning to the office, when is it likely? I don't think I have a particularly um, insightful view on yes, this.
1: Yes, I, I, I should have answered that point as well. Please go I, I mean, I think, I think that uh, the, government, the government is encouraging people to return to the office when they can in accordance with the roadmap they've, lay, they've laid out. So the government is definitely encouraging that, but there's, there's some quite interesting research that's been done which shows that, that only, at best, 70% of office occupation will return. And I, that sounds right to me. I mean, I think you know the history has shown that we want to make life easier for people. Uh, that's the job of politicians, to make life better and i think there is going to be quite a lot of changed working patterns as a result of 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 what has happened i mean this zoom call for example is something that phil and i would have done these things physically uh until just over a year ago but but zoom has a genuinely beneficial purpose for communication um as well as meeting the current uh, restrictive demands on us all. So, so I do think that, that, that working in offices won't return to what it was before, but the answer is the government is, is strongly encouraging people to do so, not least because it helps put heart into the center of towns and cities, uh, not least uh, the city of London.
0: Indeed, and that segues very nicely into probably the penultimate question, which is, do you, do you have a view um, on whether there's going to be a significant impact on the commercial property market in the next two to three years, post-Covid, of course?
1: Well, I do, uh, though my view, uh, it's Phil's view, you really want, not mine, because he's uh, he's the uh, forecaster in these matters. But I I, I think for the reasons I've just given, it's very hard to see that there won't be an impact on the commercial property market. I see, for example, that the City of London is already working out ways to create 30,000 new homes from the... The uh, commercial property market, and I think that shows you i mean the, the genius this is the point that the socialists never understand the genius of the private sector is it does address these sort of issues and and you know the town centre in the royal town of Sutton coalfield. Uh, is is under very great duress at the moment because the big retail chains, the, the retail market has changed so fundamentally but if our plans are successful it will resurge with far, far more people living there in all manner of different flats and homes and configurations and that will be the footfall that will put back the heart into the town centre and will also attract in the retail market so, so you know, I, I'm, I'm confident that we will get success from this but I, I'm afraid I think the answer to your question is that the commercial market is going to change significantly in the coming years.
0: Yeah, indeed. Okay, we've got time for almost a sound bitey answer here to the final question, which is we are due an autumn budget later on this year. Are we going to see tax increases? Um, Let's both give our views on this last question.
1: Well, I think it depends a lot on the extent to which uh, growth rebounds. I mean, at the moment, people are saying that we will be up to pre-pandemic levels of economic, of GNI and so forth, by the second quarter of next year. And that's that's in, in, encouraging. Um, but uh, But I think that the budget will look very seriously, and I have no insider information, at the equalization of capital gains tax and income tax, and I think also there is no logic apart from cephalogical in uh, encouraging rich people to save for their pensions by giving them a 40% tax break when it's the the less well-off cohort we really need to to help. So I would be surprised if the Chancellor didn't consider uh, giving everyone a 20% uh, tax break uh, on on pensions. So in terms of uh, CGT and in terms Um, uh, of the other tax I mentioned, I think there would be be changes there, pensions and CGT. And finally, I think there is a very strong case indeed for lowering the current top rate of income tax from uh, from 45 down to 40%. Uh, After all, uh, throughout the whole of the years of socialist government and Tony Blair, taxation was never as high as the 50% that people are having to pay today.
0: OK, thank you. Very quickly, I'll give my view, which is that the deficit is coming in by more than expected. Um, so smaller and growth is stronger. There will probably be some tax increases in general, but fairly limited. But um, that debate is going to run and run. So um, I think we're. it's 11 o'clock now. That's really all we've got time for in this session. Um, Thanks very much to all of you for attending, as ever. Um, Special word of thanks to Andrew Mitchell uh, for coming on for us. And, you know, of course, our colleagues who hard work behind the scenes make these webcasts possible. So goodbye. Keep safe. See you next time.